Hey there. Thank you for listening to the Wesley Memorial Podcast. This is Clark Chilton, Associate Pastor of Contemporary Worship and Evangelism. For the month of September, we're going to be looking at what the Bible says about family. And the sermon series we're doing is called Family Life. We're going to look at some of the practical things the Bible has to say about marriage, singleness, parenting, and more. So dig in with us. We hope this series is a blessing to you. And thanks again for listening. Good morning, everyone. As we go into this next, this new month of September, we are starting a new series called Family Life, and this first week of it is about marriage. And uh, then the week after is singleness, and then the week after that is uh, parenting. So we've got a lot of really good stuff coming up through this month that we hope that you come back for. And the, one of the beautiful things about the Bible, one of the many beautiful things about the Bible, is that it begins with a marriage in the garden, Adam and Eve, and it ends with a marriage of Jesus Christ and his church coming together. And then here in the in-between, between Genesis and Revelation, we've got a lot of really good stuff to learn about with our marriages um, here and now in our lives. Now, I realize this is a really big topic, and it's actually bigger than you can cover on any individual Sunday. And so maybe in the future, we'll be addressing it uh, for a whole month. So I, we realize it's a lot to talk about it for one sermon. So in the, in the bio of this video, the pastoral team has some suggestions for books um, that you can check out if you would like to look at those to help supplement uh, what you hear today. Because as my friend Talbot Davis in Good, at, the, at Good, Good Shepherd Church in Charlotte likes to say, that the best time to work on your marriage is when you don't need to. And um, to not get into damage control, but to be working on it continually with your marriage. And, and we pray today that the sermons you he- that you hear here and the 11 o'clock service with Jeff are a blessing to help build and develop even more godly, Christ-centered, spirit-led, um, with loving each other with the love of, of Christ in your marriages. And that's our prayer for you. And if you're listening to this and you're not married yet, or you're a young person who's single, uh, next week we'll be talking about singleness. Um, but we pray that this, uh, this message today is an encouragement to you to give you a vision for uh, what your future marriage could look like. I've always said that there's the two greatest questions that every person on earth has to answer are, number one is, what will you do with the person of Jesus Christ? Will he be Lord in your life, or will he uh, be just be a good teacher? Or secondly, the second question, the most important question is, who will be your spouse? Uh, who will be your mate in this life if you do get married? Those are the two greatest uh, questions. So, and then also, if you're divorced and you're listening to this, we want to be sensitive to that and to know that there are deep wounds there. And we pray that this message today, but also throughout the, the whole month, will help provide healing and hope for your future. And also, lastly, as I go through all these disclaimers, uh, is we, I don't want this message to be construed as elevating uh, the nuclear family or marriage as greater than singleness or greater than something else, because that's not true. And, but the church has been guilty of that dichotomy uh, for far too long of elevating marriage as better than everything else, but that both are different and blessed 
And even, as we'll see next week, singleness is a calling, can be a calling from God that's equal to marriage. So as I've got through all these disclaimers, uh, marriage is a big topic. So I'm going to be narrowing it down today on one big idea, which is that covenant is what makes Christian marriage distinctive. Covenant is what makes Christian marriage distinctive. And and underneath that are two subheadings. One is that there are misunderstandings of covenant and marriage in our culture today, and there are many blessings involved with covenant. So misunderstandings with covenant and the many blessings of covenant. The, the church, by and large, especially in the postmodern age, has been discipled by culture regarding marriage for far too long. And this is backwards, because God invented marriage. It was his design, his idea. Genesis chapter 2, a man and woman shall leave their father and mother and cleave together as one flesh. It was God's intent in creation of monogamous marriage. So it is the church that's to speak with authority regarding marriage, because it is God's creation, not the other way around. However... In the culture in which we find ourselves, that all sounds well and good, but the results speak differently as the culture continues to disciple us and many people regarding marriage. And because of that, you see a marital wasteland all around us. As the, 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 the stat that many of us have heard, that the divorce rate is roughly about 50%, of all marriages in a divorce. And that, and that number has actually gone down in the past few years, but that is because less people are actually getting married. Therefore, less people are getting divorced. Um, but they are, in a sense, cohabitating instead of getting uh, married. But the average divorce rate is still around 45%. Now, in 1960, the divorce rate was 25%. In 1960, 75% of all couples were married. Now, as I said, it is less than 50%. In 1960, a percentage of a percentage of 1% were cohabitating before marriage. Now, it is 29% are cohabitating before marriage. Now, part of the upswing of these numbers is that there is perhaps a distrust, or a cynicism regarding marriage. This perception that I am more free if I'm outside of a covenant or agreement or commitment. And that mindset is reflected in those statistics I just read. Many, many people may feel like that old Rodney Dangerfield joke, which is, my wife and I were happy for 20 years, but then we met. So there's misunderstandings of marriage covenant. Here are some of the misunderstandings of marriage covenant that I could think of this week. One is that the, the definition of a perfect soulmate to many is someone who will affirm me, not change me, and release me to be myself and not shackle me. Marriage is about me and my self-fulfillment, not about us. That's a misunderstanding about marriage. Now, the great irony of this approach is that it puts more pressure on your marriage than even the Bible suggests is even possible. 
Because you are expecting marriage to provide something for you that it can never give you. In order to have a marriage of total self-fulfillment, you have to find someone who doesn't think there's anything wrong with you. And good luck with that. Most, here's another uh, misunderstanding of marriage. The most people assume most marriages are unhappy. So therefore, I won't even get married, as reflected in the stats I read earlier. Most people would say, you know what, I don't even want to, I don't want to even go through the trial of potential divorce, so I won't get married. If everyone's getting divorced, that means most people, most marriages are unhappy. Or my parents had a terrible marriage, therefore I don't want to put myself through that, which is understandable in some ways, um, if that was your experience. So therefore I'm never getting married. Now, but other statistics do clearly show that married people do have better health, they do live longer, they do have better wealth, uh, gaining of wealth, so there are, of course, benefits to being married. Another misunderstanding, though, of marriage is living together is a great way to figure out the other person before marriage, almost like a trial run, sort of like you find the sexual or romantic chemistry, and then it will work itself out. You see this a lot in popular culture. I was watching a television show I like to watch lately called Alone, as I've referred to earlier in sermons before. And there was a guy on the show who was dating his girlfriend for 16 years. 16 years! They started dating in high school, and they were still dating in their mid-30s. And it reminds me of my favorite theologian, Beyonce. And what did she say? She said, put a ring on it. You know, put, put a ring on it. But according to the National Center of Health Statistics, the probability of a first marriage ending in separation within five years is 20%. So one in five marriages do end within the first five years. But the probability of a premarital cohabitation breaking up within five years is more than doubled. It is 49% likely. After 10 years, the probability of a first marriage ending is 33%. But compared to 62% of those that cohabitate, this is from a National Center of Health, Health Stats government website. Now, this trial run idea is fueled by this false assumption that marriage is about romantic or sexual gratification only. And much of this is brought about by unrealistic marriage standards we see in movies, in television, and even music. Many years ago on the uh, Late Night with David Letterman uh, show, when he was on Late Night, he interviewed a famous actor who was a well-known, handsome actor. And Letterman asked him, now you're a sex symbol that plays exciting roles with gorgeous women. How does this compare with your real life off screen? And the actor replied, well, I've been happily married for 20 years, so my life looks very different than how it looks on the screen. But he said, here's the difference, though, in a nutshell. In movies, life is about sex and occasionally about children. Married life is mostly about children and occasionally about sex. And the fact is, is that marriage is a blessed union, and there's a misunderstanding, a upside-down understanding many people have regarding it. In increasing numbers, most people are not getting married or putting it off entirely. 
even buying homes, having children before they even get married, if they ever do. But if marriage is so great, then why are so many people putting it off or not even doing it? I think it's a misunderstanding of biblical covenant. It's a misunderstanding of covenant that Christian marriage is an exclusive, permanent, public covenant with God in which you share every part of your life. It's this exclusive covenant is what makes Christian marriage distinctive, distinctive from secular marriage. Some people are so freaked out about covenant, I've heard it suggested that we should have renewable contract marriages, that every three years you have the option for another three years, almost like leasing a car. Interesting idea, but that's not marriage. See, marriage is not an impermanent sexual contract, but it's rather a permanent, exclusive, public covenant in which you share every part of your life. Now, part of this misunderstanding is maybe another misunderstanding about the nature of love itself that some people may have, which is that love is not a feeling first, but that love is an action first. It's a commitment first. Then the feelings can follow. When you have this understanding of the very nature of love, this deep understanding and covenant, you can love someone with a commitment first, even when you don't particularly like them that day. You will fall out of like with someone sometimes. In the covenant, whether you're committed to action and love, can get you through those, maybe those dry times when the feelings aren't there. See, we all love by faith, even when we don't realize it. Now, because love, even in Genesis 2.20, where Adam and Eve uh, are joined together in, in, in the, this covenant of marriage, that the, there's covenantal language there from the very beginning, this merger of love and law. And it's within this merger of love and law of covenant, of unbreakable bond, in which there is safety. If you think of it this way, your love for your children is covenantal. You first see the child, they give it to you, and then you give and you give, and they don't give anything back. They can't even talk for a long time, and you're okay with that. You're giving out of the commitment. You're giving even when it's hard. You're loving through the difficulty. You're loving when the feelings aren't even there, and you're exhausted. You sacrifice, and your life as you knew it, it's gone. It goes away. It's difficult. But in that sacrifice, you find real love, a love that's not hunger-based, but self-giving. In his book, The, the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis, um, there's a younger demon and an older demon, and the older demon is teaching the younger demon how to basically ruin people's lives. And the older demon says, most human beings confuse hunger with love, or they confuse love with hunger. There's, there's love in that hunger, but it's mostly ego-based. And it's the same way that no matter what will come, though you're sacrificing for others, self-giving love is 
true love, as Jesus even tells us, that if you lay your life down for your neighbor, for your brother, your sister, that is love. Love is sacrifice and commitment, even when the feelings aren't there. Covenant, it's not about necessarily about feelings or circumstance or even romantic chemistry, even while that is very important. But those things ebb and they flow. Marriages will begin with romance, but they may end in despair unless somewhere along the way, both parties, one or the other, both, decide to put the needs of the other above their own. Now, this is essentially the answer to this question that I've heard before in our popular culture too, which is, why do I need a piece of paper to love somebody? And I'll tell you why. You need it because once you make that covenant, you're saying, I'm now committed to being loving and tender and faithful to this person, regardless of how I feel. And this paper, if you will, it's more than the piece of paper, though, it, it, but it's, it makes that commitment solid. In, 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 in a great irony, this contrasts with our culture, culture's misunderstanding of covenant that within those commitments and vows, there's actually a greater intimacy, a greater safety, a greater freedom that even reveals more and more who you are over time. Now, many get into marriage thinking that love will keep us together, and that's partially true. But in reality, marriage ends up becoming a mirror that teaches you more about the essence of love, and it shows you your own shortcomings. And that's the difficult work, but the important work, if you're willing to look. But a covenant mindset says, you know what, we're in this foxhole together, and we're going to work it out. I'm committed to you outside of my feelings. And God is going to uphold his end of the covenant as well. So we should too. That's the ideal, if you will. I know, realize it doesn't always happen. And be sensitive to that, to people's lives. But do you see what happens though when we take God out of marriage and it becomes purely platonic or purely romantic? You, God keeps it, if you will, uh, within the safe bounds of covenant when he's in the center of that relationship. Because if you compare the covenant idea to cohabitating only, well, when you cohabitate, you know, you're still kind of in marketing and promotion. You still have a foot in the door. You really haven't completely sealed the deal. There's still that possibility. It's sort of like prenuptial agreement. That's, that comes in the face of Christian marriage, this permanent exclusive idea even of covenant. So as I've gone through some of the misunderstandings, here are some of the, the, the blessings of covenant of marriage as well. As we saw in the video earlier, this idea of mutual submission that, that the good of the other is more important than my own happiness, and that when both do that, it, it fills in the strengths and weaknesses of both parties. And as you mutually submit to one another, totally equal with each other, it develops a godly character over time. Another benefit of a blessing of covenant is that it, it creates an even more true understanding of love, as I said earlier, it being commitment first, and then feelings will follow here and there, but the commitment is the main thing. Um, another blessing of covenant is that it's, as I said, man and woman becoming one flesh, strengths and weaknesses being interlocked, 
this realization that we're both of the same material. One is not better than the other, and it creates a greater trust. Another blessing of covenant is that it creates stability for children, the raising of children. And I love this one, next one, that the early Puritans referred to family particularly as the church within the big C church, the church within the church. And another uh, really fascinating thing of marriage is that it's a covenant of man and woman, but it symbolizes Christ's union with the church, as we'll see here today in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, which I'm going to be reading through um, just for a few verses where Paul teaches um, with a great bit a more detail of Christian marriage. So as we'll see in Ephesians 5, um, you'll see this idea that covenant does make Christian marriage dis- distinctive, but you'll also see a few verses, particularly verses 21 and verse 30, where Paul is essentially saying to his reader, your marriage is not about you, but about the other, about submitting to the other, su- subjecting yourself to the other. And so verse 21, Ephesians 5, he says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Let's stop there, because a lot of times over the course of history, this verse gets taken out of out of context, and it's seen, as we saw in the video earlier, as a as a uh, reference point for saying, "Hey, you need to you need to be you, you need to submit to me," and that, as I believe, what is not being said here, is you've really got to keep reading. You had to read it in context. If when we get to verse twenty-five, the husband paragraph is much longer, and it's not a value. It's not a matter of value, um, but of order. That, it is, that there, is, there is an equal footing here. And even though Paul is saying the man may be ahead of something, this is an gr- even greater responsibility placed on men's shoulders that can feel overwhelming. It's a huge responsibility. It's one that men need to pray through and even be more sacrificial to the love of their lives. And something else in these verses of Ephesians, it doesn't say women submit to all men. It's not what it's saying. It doesn't say that. Maybe it says that in some make-believe Bible book like Second Hesitations, but not here. It's an egalitarian picture of man and woman of mutual submission. Verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Well, how much, did Christ, how much does Christ love the church, husbands? He gave his life for the church. And then Paul says, and he gave himself up for her, for the church. Verse 26, Jesus did this for the church. Why? In order to make the church her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or of anything of the kind. Yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. He's essentially saying, husbands, love your wives in a, such a sacrificial way that it makes her holy, that it blesses her life and elevates her, 
just as Jesus did the same for all of us and for the church. He goes on to say, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. See, there's this this connection there. There's this one flesh idea. There's not a me and you, but there's we. And that when you fall, I fall. When you rise up, I rise up. That we're connected, you're one. For no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. And then he quotes Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Then Paul says, this is a great mystery, and I am applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect his husband. One life given for the other, submitting to the other, mutually submitting and caring for the other. And this idea of mutual submission, it's not, it shouldn't be a I have to do this mindset. It's a I want to. It's not a have to, it's I want to. This idea that love's a commitment and an action first. I'm committed to giving of my life for someone else. And this co- covenant it is what makes Christian marriage distinctive. And lastly, as we look at this idea of mutual submission, I realize it sounds good, but it's not always necessarily easy. And there's a few things I'll say about that. That it's, it's sort of like creating a new habit, and it takes time. Mutual submission can take time to develop and grow into. I was reading a book by the author Philip Yancey uh, recently, and he was telling a story that he went out into the woods with some friends who were professional bird watchers. And as they were walk, walking along, um, his friends could hear these bird calls, and they automatically knew, hey, that's a Rocky Mountain warbler or whatever. And Yancey said, man, I have no idea what they're talking about. I, I need to practice. And once you learn the, the voice of who you're trying to, let, what you're trying to hear, and you, you practice, it gets easier to hear it. And it's the same way with a mutual submission idea. That it, at first it may feel strange or awkward. It's like developing a new habit. But over time, it gets easier and more joyful as you see the benefit and the blessing of it as you bless the other. The second part of mutual submission is that it can take a bit of temperance. It can, because when, you, when you're submitted to the other and you're loving each other in that way, ideally, you can receive criticism in your marriage without feeling crushed because you know the other has your best intentions at heart. And you can give criticism without crushing because you have taken yourself and your ego a bit more out of the equation. And lastly, mutual submission is a bit of totality. The pastor Tim Keller wisely says that your marriage is the center of your life. And if it is strong, you will move in strength even if everything around you feels weak. But if the marriage and the relationship is weak, it can be very difficult and move forward in weakness. You know, whenever I counsel couples before weddings and 
and walk them through what they're getting ready to do. And, you know, it's a big responsibility, and I really try and put as many tools in their toolbox as I can. And one thing I like to tell couples is you cannot love your spouse the way they truly deserve. Because ultimately, our love can run out, our love can ebb and flow and how we're feeling that day. We can make mistakes. We can say things that are harsh. You know, ultimately, only God can love your spouse the way they truly deserve. And, and so I encourage couples to imagine your shared love for each other. Imagine it like a well. And every time you do something kind, you, 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 you serve the other, you do something to bless them, you, you, are, you are pulling love out of that well, and you're giving it to your spouse. But sometimes that well is going to run dry. It's going to get low, just based on the circumstances that we're in. It, it, you know, that, that well might even run dry. And there are days when you're not going to feel particularly loving. And that's where I like to tell couples, you know what? God's love should be the center and source of your marriage. And you know what? God's love doesn't run out. His well does not run dry. And that you can be a vessel and a conduit to be a blessing to each other. And drawing from that by faith on days when maybe you just don't feel it. But it's not only about feeling. Because we all love by faith. We all love without, with, with trusting um, beyond ourselves. And as I close, I especially want to pray for those that are listening and watching and pray with great sensitivity, and I'm aware of that, that many people have been through great trials with marriage. And I want to pray for particularly certain groups um, to know that, let you know that our church loves you and supports you no matter what you're, you've been through or what you're going through, or even if you're in a current in a relationship and in a marriage that's going well. That, that we want you to know that God loves you right where you are, and he can provide healing and hope to all of our hearts. So let us pray together. God, I start this time of prayer and giving thanks for your word that guides us and developing and leading us. Thank you, Lord, that it is your love that is the model and the example for our own love. Uh, and, and we love each other based on how you've loved, first loved us. And I pray, God, that you... Um, we look to you as our example, as the author and perfecter of our faith um, on how we love our, our spouses. And I pray that we would dwell on that love. Um, so God, I, I particularly pray for those who are married right now, who are in a marriage relationship. I pray that right now that, that they would continue to see, God, that, that you are cleaving them together, that they would have that one flesh mentality, that when when he or she rises, I rise. And when they fall, I fall. God, I pray that they would see that their marriage is the most important relationship in their lives. That they would fight for it. That they would work on it, especially when they feel like they don't need to. And that you would clear any hindrances to communication or understanding of each other. But that you would equip them, God, with every good gift they need to grow in, in a healthy way one another. Anoint them, God to fight for each other, refresh and renew their covenant they share with each other. May this be the day of new beginnings and a blessing to them, God. I also pray for anyone listening who has been through a divorce and the trauma and the difficulty of that time and, and how much, God, you are there to heal and bind up any broken hearts. 
God, I pray that you keep their eyes heavenward and bring healing to what has happened in the past and that they would continue to walk in the joy, Lord, of knowing you and not only lamenting what they've lost, but that they would celebrate what they do have, Lord, which is you, and that your love is perfect, and that you'll bless them and heal the wounds that they may have at this time. And I pray lastly for anyone listening who has yet to marry, and they don't know if maybe they will or they won't. They don't know yet. I pray that they would trust you for the future and keep their eyes on you, and that in time you will give them the desires of their heart if they will delight in you. So God, I pray that they delight in you and that in time, you will give them the desires of their heart. So God, I thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you meet us right where we are. That in your greatness and your power, your spirit is there to lead us and help us during times of great joy in relationships or times of hardship. We can trust you, God, with our lives. So God, as we worship you at this time, we worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.